Leviticus 23, we'll begin at verse 26. Let's read together, shall we? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on exactly the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day for it is a day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening. From evening until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Today, I want to talk to you about the second holy convocation that was commanded by the Lord to be observed in the fall season. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is considered by the Jews to be the holiest day of the year. It occurs 10 days after the new year, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Those 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were set aside as a time to reflect, to repent, to prepare for the most awesome day of the year. Now, since the destruction of the temple, there are no animal sacrifices, so Jews have substituted doing good deeds in their place. According to Jewish tradition, God inscribes each person's fate for the coming year into the book of life on Rosh Hashanah and waits until Yom Kippur to seal the verdict. During the time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, known as the Days of Awe, a Jew tries to amend behavior and seek forgiveness for wrongs done against God and against other human beings. Now, if you go with me back to the first century, to the time just before the coming of Jesus, you will find the elements of the original sacrifices that were prescribed by God for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On this high holy day, the high priest is standing at the brazen altar in the courtyard of the temple. Beside him are a bullock and two goats. Normally, the priest would be wearing the beautiful vestments with the precious stones sewn into the breastpiece and the turban with the plate of gold on the forehead which, on which is inscribed the words, holiness unto the Lord. Today, however, those beautiful garments that denote position and authority have been replaced by a simple white linen robe. As the service begins, the priest first places his hands upon the head of the bullock and recites a confession of his own sin over this bull. Once that confession is made, the, the bull is led, led to the side for a moment as the high priest turns his attention to the two goats, goats almost identical in size and appearance. Someone brings him an urn into which have been placed two golden lots. One of the lots is marked for the Lord. 
The other is designated with a curious designation called for Azazel. I'll talk about that in a moment. The priest reaches into that urn and brings out the two lots, placing one upon the head of each animal, sealing their fate. It was thought to be an especially good omen if the lot marked for the Lord came out in the right hand of the priest. Now, once the goats have been designated, the priest turns to the goat destined for Azazel and ties a crimson cord around its horns. And now begins the most awesome part of the service. The high priest once more approaches the sacrificial bull, places his hands upon its head, and recites the same confession of sin he made previously. This time, however, he adds a phrase that extends the confession to include not just his own sin, but that of the entire priesthood of Israel as well. Once that confession is made, the high priest then slaughters the bull, pouring its blood into a basin. The basin is handed to an assistant priest who stirs it continuously lest it coagulate, for it is not to be used just yet. Now, once that sacrifice has been done, with fear and trembling, the high priest prepares to enter the sacred place. As he comes into the holy place, he first offers some of the sacred incense on the golden altar that is before the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And as the smoke of that incense rises, it forms a cloud of sweet fragrance. Stepping quickly outside into the courtyard, he takes the blood of the bull from that priest who was still stirring it and then returns, this time stepping behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. There at the Ark of the Covenant, he sprinkles the blood of this sacrifice upon the mercy seat in order to atone for his own sin and the sin of his family. Once this sacrifice is completed, he comes back into the courtyard and turns his attention to the goat that has been marked for the Lord. This goat is also slaughtered, and its blood is likewise caught in a basin. Once again, the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies where he sprinkles the blood of this goat upon the mercy seat, just as he did that of the bullock. He then mixes the contents of the two bowls together, sprinkles the veil with the blood of the bull and goat, and then sprinkles the golden incense altar in the holy place. When he finishes, he pours the remainder of that mixed blood on the corner of the great altar outside in the courtyard where he began. The blood sacrifice for Yom Kippur is now complete. But the most unusual element of the ceremony yet remains to be performed. The second goat, the one marked for Azazel, is brought forward. That term Azazel means the goat that departs. It is closely linked to an Arabic term that means to banish or remove. This goat, we might better know it as the scapegoat. According to the command of the Lord, the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat were viewed as one offering, two integrated parts of the same offering to atone for the sins of the people. Once this scapegoat is brought to the high priest, he lays his hand on the head of that animal and confesses the sin of the nation upon it. 
as he confesses the sin of the nation and asks for the forgiveness of the Lord, he also claims the promise of God that when atonement is made for cleansing from sin, then the Lord promises to make his people clean. As he makes that statement, the high priest turns toward the people who fall on their faces and respond, blessed be his name, the glory of his kingdom is forever and ever. At the conclusion of the ritual, the high priest calls another priest to lead this scapegoat away into the wilderness while he remains in the house of worship. During the temple period, a piece of that scarlet cord that was used to lead this animal away was taken and nailed to the outside of the house of worship. As the priest led the scapegoat away, all the people would turn and watch as it left the encampment, knowing that all their sins for the past year were resting on that animal. <laughs> the last thing they wanted was for the scapegoat to somehow find its way back into the camp, bringing their sins with him. So the person leading it away from the camp took it far, far away out into the wilderness, and then to be sure it never returned, he pushed it over a cliff to its death. During the temple period, a tradition recorded in the Mishnah says that when the scapegoat met its end, the scarlet cord that was attached to the outside of the place of worship would turn from red to white, signaling to the people that God had accepted their sacrifice and their sins were forgiven. Now, there were other elements to this day of atonement that involved ceremonial washing of the high priest and changing of garments a couple of times and additional responses by the people and additional sacrifices that were part of the regular services that were conducted on that day. But, but what I've described to you here are the core elements for this special day of holy convocation for the people of God. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, is the day set aside by God in his grace and mercy where the people of God can be cleansed of their sin. All the other feast days have times of celebration included in them, but the Day of Atonement is a solemn occasion. The Day of Atonement is the only day during the year when anyone is allowed into the Holy of Holies. And then it is only the high priest who is allowed in as he enters to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat. With the sacrifices completed and the removal of the scapegoat, there is thanksgiving by the people for the promise of God that their sins are covered and forgiven. At the same time, there is the knowledge that tomorrow will bring a whole new set of challenges. And try as they might, be as devout as they will, be as conscientious as they can possibly be, they will not be able to keep the law, and once more they will begin to accumulate a debt of sin. Now, what I want you to see in this message today is more than some interesting material from the pages of history about the practices of an ancient people. I want you to understand that this holy convocation called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the rituals associated with this day are more than religious ceremonial rituals of the nation of Israel, but they point to a deeper spiritual truth that can be applied to your personal life. What I want you to see is that each and every part of the Day of Atonement 
points to a final solution for sin that is provided by the Almighty. See, all the blood of all the sacrifices that were slain on all the days of atonement throughout history was never sufficient to take away the sin of the people. At best, the animal sacrifice was a temporary fix. The best the blood sacrifice could do was cover over the sin. It could never wash it away. The blood sacrifice was payment for sin. But the very next day, the debt was being built up again. Each and every part of the service of Yom Kippur points to Jesus, the one who has come to redeem fallen humanity, the one who has come to atone for the sins of the world. In the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, the apostle Paul wrote, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The good news of the gospel is that the one who believes in Jesus doesn't ever have to wonder whether his repentance has been thorough or whether his good works are adequate because salvation finally and forever rests not on your own merits, but upon the finished work of Jesus. According to Romans chapter 5, the way to receive the payment purchased by Jesus through the shedding of his blood is by faith. The result of placing your faith in the atoning work of Jesus is justification, a right standing with God, and gracious access into the presence of the heavenly Father. Now that's good news today. When you come to this day, in the, de- in the presence of God, you need not worry that your bad deeds may outweigh the good in God's balance scales of judgment. You don't have to wonder if the sacrifice is going to be accepted or if the price paid is sufficient. Your salvation rests securely in the completed work of Jesus on the cross and the fact that his sacrifice is completely accepted by the Father. You see, the pieces of the Yom Kippur observance are the type or the picture illustration of that which was to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic feast. The ceremony is the copy. Jesus is the reality. The ceremony is the picture. Jesus is the model. Everything in the ritual of Yom Kippur pointed to the time when that which was good was going to be fulfilled by that which was better. That's what it's talking about in Hebrews 10 and 9 when it says, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's what it's talking about in verses 19 and 20 of that same chapter when it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. You see, those who are in sin need atonement. You can't atone for your own sin. You must have God's method. God's way of perfect atonement is the person and work of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to tell you, atonement is only possible through Jesus because he is uniquely superior. Why don't you just say the word superior? Superior. Jesus is superior. 
Jesus is first of all a superior high priest. When you look at the, the position of the high priest during the first century, you find that it was filled with corruption. Instead of being descended from Aaron, the high priest in those days was appointed by Herod and often won his office through treachery or bribery. Herod appointed whom he wanted for the position and for the duration of time that he determined. Through this system, there came into being a clique of wealthy families who were usually Sadducees and were primarily loyal to Rome. This priestly aristocracy of wealthy families tyrannized the people. But Jesus is a superior priest. Let me show you. As a superior priest, he has a superior character. That's what it's talking about in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The high priest on the Day of Atonement was commanded to wear white garments to symbolize his, his desire for purity and holiness. But Jesus didn't need any external symbols. He was perfection personified from before time began because he is the Son of God. The Levitical high priest needed to atone for his own sins before presenting a sacrifice for his people. But this was completely unnecessary for Jesus as he was completely innocent and holy without evil. The high priest on the Day of Atonement had to undergo ritual purification and ceremonial washings in order to ensure that he was clean enough to offer the sacrifice. But, but Jesus had no need of ritual purification. Nothing external could enhance his purity and make him any more holy. I'm talking about the superior character of the superior priest, Jesus. I'm talking about why you can put your trust in him to save you. It's it's because he is superior in character. It's also because as a superior high priest, he has a superior ministry. His ministry is superior, first of all, because it is eternal. In Exodus chapter 40, God appointed Aaron and his descendants to be a priesthood forever, but no one individual lived forever. The Jews in Jesus' day were terrified that the high priest would be struck dead by God on the Day of Atonement. And because of their fear, it was the custom to have a substitute priest ready in the wings to replace the chosen high priest just in case he died while performing his duties and couldn't finish the atonement that was necessary on that day. But I want to remind you that you need never fear that the high priestly ministry of Jesus will ever falter or fail. Hebrews 7 and 25 says, therefore he is able to save those forever who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7 and 16 says that Jesus has become a priest forever according to the power of an indestructible life. His priesthood is eternal. Then I want you to see that the ministry of Jesus is superior because it is appointed by God. 
The ancient Levitical priests received their high priestly appointments through heredity. By the time of the second temple, corrupt high priests connived and bribed their way to power. But Jesus was directly chosen and appointed by God. That's what it means in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, when it says, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. His ministry is superior because it is eternal. It is superior because he is appointed by God. His ministry is also superior because he is at God's right hand. See, the priests of the first century would serve a year and then retire to become part of the Sadducean aristocracy. But Hebrews 1 and 3 says this about Jesus. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father as an exalted priest and king in the perfect position to continue his ministry to his people. His ministry is superior because he is eternal. He is appointed by God. He is at God's right hand. And his ministry is superior because he, it is in a better sanctuary. You know, the earthly tabernacle was a marvelous sight in the center of the camp of Israel in the desert. Later on, the temple of Herod was one of the wonders of the world. Yet both of those pale in comparison to the majesty of the heavenly sanctuary in which Jesus ministers. Hebrews 8 and 2 calls him a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. In that holy place, I want to tell you, there is no need for an ark. There's no need for a mercy seat because the intercessory ministry of Jesus is exercised in the very presence of God. And then his ministry is superior because of a better covenant. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of a new covenant that would replace the old in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the old covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In this new covenant, Jesus himself is the high priest and God inhabits the hearts of people who are cleansed by the blood of Jesus and made fit to be holy vessels of the spirit of God. As a believer and follower of Jesus, you are part of the new covenant covenant. That means that your body is a living temple and you bear the holy of holies and the very manifest presence of God in your heart. Think about that every time you walk around. You are the holy of holies living right here and the manifest presence of God is on the inside. I'm telling you that Jesus is a superior high priest. He has a superior character. He has a superior ministry that is eternal, appointed by God at God's right hand in a better sanctuary and a better covenant. Well, not only is Jesus a superior high priest, remember that word superior? He is also a superior payment. See, Jesus is more than the messianic high priest. He is not just the one offering the sacrifices, but he himself 
is the offering presented for the forgiveness of sin. His sacrificial payment is superior, first of all, in power. You know, the old covenant sacrifices were limited to the physical realm. They were offered by an earthly high priest on a temporary altar and were able to purify in only the most superficial manner. Offerings of bulls and goats could restore, watch this, could restore an Israelite to ritual purity within the nation, but could do nothing for the individual's heart. What those animal sacrifices taught the Israelites was that the gruesome penalty for sin was death. Every time an Israelite stood looking at the altar on the Day of Atonement and saw the blood splatter onto the white linen robe of the high priest and then saw it drain into the basin, he was reminded that the penalty for sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The animal being slain on the altar was dying in his place. Every time... He saw the lifeless body of that goat on the altar. He was reminded, that should have been me up there. But even with all the animals slain on all the altars for all the years of observing the Day of Atonement, there wasn't sufficient sacrifice made to erase the sin of humanity. That's the meaning of Hebrews 10.4 when it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sins were covered. The sins were passed over, but they were never literally removed. But then we hear John the baptizer as he proclaims in John 1:29, "Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Stand with me upon the mount called Calvary. Look into the face of a dying Savior. As you behold his marred visage and his thorn-pierced brow and his beaten back and his nailed hands and feet and the blood flowing from his spear-pierced side, the realization hits. The man hanging on that cross is sinless, spotless, blameless. He doesn't deserve to die. I'm the guilty one, the one on that cross should be me. But as he breathes his last breath and with one final word proclaims, it is finished. (laughs) At that moment, the penalty for my sin and your sin was forever paid. The sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God satisfied the wrath of God once and for all and lifted sin's obstruction to your fellowship with Him. So the sin that you carried no longer haunts you. The sin that has enslaved you no longer has you bound. Your sin isn't just covered over. Your sin isn't just passed over. But your sin is removed. The final verdict is guilty no more. The earthly high priest was commanded to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. 
the altar of incense, and even the altar itself to purify the sanctuary. I want to tell you, when Jesus presented his blood as a sacrificial payment, it was powerful enough to cleanse even the heavens of every remembrance of your sin. When that Old Testament scapegoat was led through the camp out into the wilderness, the eye of every Israelite followed him, praying that their sin would not return. So it was that Jesus, the Bible says, suffered outside the gate. And when you confess your sin over the head of the Savior, who became the prophetic fulfillment of that scapegoat, all your sin is forever taken away. That's why Isaiah 38 and 17 can say, you have cast all my sins behind your back. That's why Isaiah 43 and 25 can say, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That's why Psalm 103 and 12 can say, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's the power of his sacrificial payment. But not only is his sacrifice superior in power, it's superior in simplicity. The intricate sacrificial ritual revealed in Leviticus had grown even more complicated by the time of Jesus. Yet more was accomplished in his one act of sacrifice on Calvary's cross than in all the Levitical rituals ever observed. See, he didn't have to keep offering his sacrifice year after year. The complete atonement of the sins of the whole world took place in one act, on one day, in one moment, on a hill outside Jerusalem. After it was accomplished, Jesus took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. His work was complete. Atonement. That word atonement, don't let it scare you. It's, you know, here's an easy way to remember what's going on with atonement. Just split it up. At one meant. That's what's going on with atonement. God and man are brought back together. We are at one with our creator. That's what atonement is all about. Jesus is a superior high priest. He's a superior payment. And finally, I want you to see that Jesus provides a superior privilege. You know, the average worshiper was never allowed into the sanctuary. The Levites were able to enter the holy place, but were never permitted into the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go past the veil into the Holy of Holies, and that was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The individual worshiper was at the mercy of the high priest to bring him into the presence of God. As a follower of Jesus, you have a privilege that no one before Calvary was ever given. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, when the Savior breathed his last and died on that cross, the rabbinic tradition tells us that on that day of atonement, 
the scarlet cord nailed to the door of the sanctuary, on that day they say it failed to turn white. And for the next 40 years that the temple was standing, it failed to turn white. You want to know why? It's because the old had now been fulfilled by the new and living way of the sacrifice of Jesus. Never again would there be call for the blood of bulls and goats. Never again would only the high priest have access into the presence of God. When Jesus cried, it is finished, the Bible says that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, and now whosoever will may come. The presence of God isn't limited to the high priest once a year on the high holy day, but the way is open to anyone, any time. What that means is you have access right now. Whenever you need to get to God, you can come. If you're coming through Jesus You can come. That's what it means in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, when it says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, watch this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what that means? That means come on in. Come on in. Are you hurting? Come on in. Are you worried? Come on in. Are you fearful? (laughs) Come on in. Are you discouraged? Come on in. Are you broken? Come on in. Are you lonely? Come on in. Are you disappointed? Come on in. Are you disillusioned? Come on in. Are you weak? Come on in. Are you weary? Come on in. Are are you ready to give up? (laughs) Come on in. Come on in. Whatever your struggle, whatever your burden, whatever your problem, come on in. (laughs) When you come, you'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Somebody just say, thank you, Lord. Come on, thank the Lord. Just take a moment and thank the Lord, would you? I I just wonder if anybody feels like you need to come in today. Come through Jesus and, and, and come on in. You're welcome in his presence. If you come through Jesus, you're welcome. Let's bow together. Lord, there's some folks today that need, to, that need to come in. I don't know what's going on in their lives, but, but you know. And so, Lord, I'm just praying now that you'll give them the courage. Give them the courage to come on in. Maybe, maybe somebody's listening to this message today and they've never fully surrendered their life to Jesus. Today's the day to do that. You just look to him and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. Transform my life. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for going my way instead of your way. And so I turn to you now. I'm coming to you. 
not on the basis of my good deeds, simply clinging to the cross of Jesus and accepting His work as the final and full payment for my sin. Oh Lord, I'm praying for that one now that that they'll surrender to you. Lord, I'm praying for this person who's burdened, this one that's weary, this one that's disheartened, this one that's disillusioned. Praying for the one who's sick. Praying for the one that is ready to give up. As we come to you, I pray that you will receive us. I thank you for doing that. I thank you for mercy, and I thank you for grace to help in our time of need. This week, I pray that we will begin to see evidence of that grace at work. In Jesus' name.